Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Dave Noyce. I'm a managing editor here at the Tribune and religion editor. I'm here with our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello again, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, LDS mission presents have been in the news a lot in recent months. Yet many people, including a number of active Mormons, don't know all that much about what mission presidents and the spouses who serve with them actually do. To help us explore that, who better to talk to than a couple of former Mormon mission presidents, Jim and Jeannie Jardine, who oversaw the California Sacramento mission from 2008 to 2011. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jim, thank you. Glad you're here. So, to both of you maybe, I've noticed that when talking to returned Mormon missionaries, almost invariably they refer to something their mission president said, even if it was 10, 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I know that was true with our three children who served missions before we, before we left on ours. That they, their mission presidents and their wives were uh, a major factor in their development. And I'm a former high school teacher. I think part of that is the age at which they enter the mission, that they're very vulnerable and malleable. And uh, the mission environment, too, uh, is extremely... Uh, they're willing to listen and to learn. I've, I've taught college and high school students and no better students in my life than missionaries because they were so open to, to learning from a mission president and his wife. Mm -hmm. I still quote my mission president, so I'd be <laughs> exhibit A. And uh, we used to talk about how teachable they were. And uh, I just think a big switch goes on when they step into that world that wasn't on for many of them in high school or whatever they were doing before they came. So it's a very strong learning environment. We do lots of teaching, lots of uh, conferences. There's a lot of that that goes on. And so I think that's just, um, and they take notes. That's Jeannie's point. Yeah, they, they do. They listen like no students I had ever had before. They listen, they take notes. And lots of times they're implementing what is going to be taught the next day as they go out proselyting. So there's, it's on the job training. There's a great desire to learn quickly. So you talked about the age, which is 18, 19, early 20s uh, for, for most of the young, what they call elders and sisters. Um, so a lot of people that age would be quoting qual college professors, and, and they probably still do too, but they also quote, quote mission presence because of sort of that age you're talking about. I think that's part of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. We like to think what we said is more memorable than their college professors, too. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> what, what else in the system, in the mission system, creates such a vital role for mission presidents? What, what is it about the system itself that makes that such a pivotal role, do you think? There are a couple of things. One, they've all made a big sacrifice to come. Uh, and it's very hard work. I mean, I think it's a pretty well-kept secret how hard missions are. There's a lot of rejection, a lot of they're learning new languages, many of them. And uh, I just think that gets you down to basic things. And so, and I used to say all the time, one of the things I loved about the mission culture is there's no superficiality and there's no sarcasm. It's just a very genuine environment. And also, I think uh, they're cut off from communication with their peers and with their parents. And I think that's difficult. When we were mission presidents, uh, there wasn't quite the cell phone and social media culture that there is today. Nevertheless, they were not able to talk, they only talked to their parents twice a year. 
So they really rely on each other, and uh, the mission president and his wife are really the adults slash parents in their life. And so I think that, uh, I know that we tried to step in in that role in some ways. We loved, we loved the missionaries that we served with. We cared about them, and we did feel like we were responsible for them. So the usual support systems that these missionaries would have, they're sort of long distance. They're, they're away. Exactly, they're so away. So you sort of step into that role a little bit, right? Yes. Yes. And, and, you, f- and you feel that. So h- how are mission presidents chosen? Well, you, we're probably the wrong people to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just got a call one day to go visit with an apostle, and he asked us uh, a bunch of, and it was a preliminary interview. wasn't a call. He asked us a number of questions about our willingness to serve our health, our financial resources, any family needs, to, to just trying to identify what, what the level of hardship might be. And then they say, well, you may, and in our case, uh, we said we could get ready in a year. It would take a year to get things organized. And then they say you may not get called. But then a year later, we got a second interview and then a call. Have I missed anything? I think that sometimes stake presidents also will recommend people uh, in their stakes that they see that might might be able to um, go on a mission for three years. There's, so, there's no application process, that's for sure. <laughs> so are mission presidents paid? No, you get you get housing, a car allowance, and a stipend to buy groceries, but you're not paid. But you're not paid. No. So does it actually cost you to go on a mission? Absolutely. I <laughs> mean, if you, if you're employed, when you when you leave, we both had jobs that we loved, that we left for three years, and we're not sure what we'd come back to, but we feel like it was um, it was really three of the happiest years of our lives. So you have for to be a mission president, you have to be in a place in your life where you can step away for three years, either financially or uh, job-wise or whatever. That that does limit the pool, right, of people who can do it. Yes, we saw a lot of people leave um, on faith, though, not sure to what they would come back to, and I think that was true to some extent with us. Like Jim's law practice was booming, and I was very happy teaching high school and. We didn't know what would be there when we came back. But, and so I was a, I'm a litigator, so uh, my cases were all, would all be gone, by and large. Um, but we do know people who were employed by companies. And, you know, somebody, it's very hard to give someone a leave of absence for three years. And so I think a lot of people did go on faith not knowing what they'd return to. What are the hardest decisions mission presidents face? Well, I, uh, we were talking about this before we came in, and Jeannie can talk about it as well. I think one of the hardest things to know is when you've got a missionary that has serious health issues who wants to keep serving, but the doctors are telling you that they probably should come home, and it's crushing to them. And we, we just, that, those were some really poignant, difficult things. What would you say? Yes, I was thinking of one missionary we had that had chronic migraines, like two or three a day. And one thing I didn't realize as a parent, that is if one missionary is sick, he has a companion. So not only is he not able to go out, but he's keeping someone else at home. And, uh, you know, depression or problems can set in when they're not able to go out and work. So I think some of the saddest things were when we had missionaries, as Jim said, who wanted to continue to serve, who had dreamed of being missionaries, but their health would not let them do it. That was just impossible. 
Is that ultimately your decision? Like, do you have to make them go home, I guess you could say? or a Actually, the, and this, I think this is something your audience might know, there's something called missionary medical where lots of retired LDS physicians are on staff, and you could call 24-7 to get a hotline uh, or, uh, you know, if you're dealing with an orthopedic issue, that's pretty simple. If you're dealing with uh, constant stomach aches or constant headaches or uh, we had one missionary who came home to have one shoulder operated on and came out and within two months he needed the other shoulder operated on. Uh, mental health issues, which is this is the age where they tend to show up and then you put them into a situation where they're working very hard without much free time and you'd have some anxiety would show up or depression and we had tremendous uh, support services. In fact, it's one of the roles that a mission president's wife often takes the lead on are health issues. That's right. So if our missionaries were ill, they had, they could call me. We had a nurse in the field and we were fortunate in California that we had one of our bishops was a psychiatrist and we also had a mental health facility. So we had all kinds of resources and I think most mission presidents are quick to to take advantage of those resources. And I guess to go back to your question, I never made the decision by myself. It was always in counsel with one of the medical advisors, somebody in the missionary department here, and usually the state home state president would all be part of a council to decide what was best. And the missionary's family yeah, would be right. for sure. too. Yep. And I guess sometimes the hard part is getting the missionary to see that this is what that's oh, what yeah. you're saying, yeah. to see that this would be best for them. Yeah, and and you know, they're uh, th as Jeannie said, they've dreamed about it their whole lives. So it's, you know, trying to help them understand that they've made the commitment, they've made the sacrifice, they've sort of laid their commitment on the altar, and that that's acceptable, even though they can't maybe finish it, is a is a pretty important role for us to try to help them have that perspective. So batching up people and companionships. I mean, I'm always kind of shocked that there aren't more companion murders and things like that <laughs> because this is a 24-7 deal. How, how did you choose companionships? Did you consult with one another? Did you? We, we did talk to each other quite a bit. So all missions function a little differently, but we had, when we were out there for the first two years, uh, Jim would interview uh, each missionary every six weeks. And while he was doing that, I would talk to the a companionship and we'd usually be driving back home uh, after that was over, and we'd talk about what we both had observed. And I, I had a good a, uh, chance to observe how they were interacting, if they were respectful of each other, if it seemed like they couldn't stand each other. And <laughs> we did have sometimes missionaries that wouldn't get along, and sometimes one of the answers was if they got up an hour earlier and ran before the day started, because that would settle them down, and then they could go on. But it, it, it often worked out, but then I think, Part of a mission is also getting to know and get along with someone you have almost nothing in common with. And they were surprisingly good at it. Uh, I just would echo that. I mean, you sometimes you, in that process, and I had a room, which Jeannie used to call the black hole, which had all the missionaries up on a board, and I'd go think about it and ponder and pray and do all the things you do. And sometimes you put people together because you think they're a great match, and sometimes you put them together because one can help the other. And sometimes you put them together when they're really young and they're just going to sort of flounder together, but they're going to figure it out. And every process is different. Do uh, you put two athletes together? Do you put uh, a, an athlete with someone who's very academic and they don't have things in common? And uh, 
you know, I, th I think it wasn't always easy for lots of them. And sometimes you'd have young men or women who really struggled and you'd, I mean, it wasn't unusual that your strongest missionaries would be asked to try to give, help them learn how to plan or how to be positive or, or, or just help them feel loved when they haven't really felt love in their life before. There are a lot of factors that go into it. It sounds like you were interviewing a former, you were doing sort of like secret interviews. Observation. Probably the high school probably helped you as well. Well, yeah. it was, I mean, it was, I think they were, we were useful to each other because Jim was talking to them one at a time, but I was seeing them as a unit and they had at that point, now it's on online, but they have what they called an area book that talked about who they were teaching and how it was going. And so I did get a lot of information um, without asking, you know, uh, do you like your companion, But which Jim might ask, but I, I could see if they're working together well, and because we were seeing them every six weeks and they might be together, we could make observations as if the relationship had gotten better or deteriorated. And once in a, in a great while, Jim would make a change in the middle of a transfer with something that just wasn't working, or, you know, that happened a couple of times I, I in three years. We both like teenagers, young adults. I mean, Jeannie taught high school. I'd coached, uh, spent a lot of time with college students and otherwise. And we really like this age group, and we think we get them. And our children have helped educate us along the way. And so I think we, we related to them in a way that made it easier uh, to, to sort of proceed. Because there is some cultural pressure to say, I love my companion irrespective of what's actually going on. And so you have to be able to have a sense of that. Read the cues. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the scariest thing that ever happened? Well, I'll tell you, I was talking to one of our zone leaders one night about 10, 15. He was calling me on his cell phone saying, I'm going to be late. And he said, uh, and he was from Texas with a very slow drawl. He said, uh, President, I'm going to have to get back to you. We're going off the road and hung up. And I didn't <laughs> call back for 20 minutes. They were up in the hills. They'd gone off a road. They hit a tree branch that was about a, a foot in diameter that went right through the windshield between the headrests. Oh, wow. And hung the car up, and they both walked away. But wow. I didn't know for 25 minutes what was happening. <laughs> that was one of the scary. We had a picture of it. It was the, one of the favorite pictures of the, <laughs> the, car of the mission. The yeah. Wow. What would you say? Well, we did have a missionary with a psychotic break, too, that ended up in an emergency room. Oh. And we, fortunately, we were that night, we were wished. Uh, our bishop, who was a psychiatrist, so he immediately got good help, and we figured out what the issues were, and you know. But that was—I hadn't seen someone with a psychotic break. That was frightening. He, he turned out to be one of our best missionaries. It just the pressure of learning a difficult language. Was he able to stay? Oh, yes, yeah, he, he was. And uh -huh. Became a leader. Well, I mean, he was wow. fabulous. Hmm. I mean, it's sort of a funny story. He just. He'd always been a strong person. He was a junior companion. He had no control, and his senior companion was nice, but always getting lost, and I think his frustration level. So once we switched who got to drive, it fixed itself. I mean, it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think our, reader, our listeners probably don't fully understand senior, junior companions and all of that. How does that work? Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't understand how a mission was organized, but they're usually put in groups. Uh, in our mission, that correlated to a stake. That would be a zone. There would be zone leaders, 
And who are young missionaries. Who are young missionaries. They would be in charge of maybe 10 or 12 missionaries. And then they, those would be companionships. And there would be a senior and a junior. And then there were also traveling sisters, is what we called them. And they were sisters that were leaders that would travel f- throughout the missions and teach. And um, But there were lots of leadership opportunities. Almost every missionary that we had went home having been a leader in some way. Hmm. So what was the breakdown gender-wise in your mission? We, had a, we typically had about 200 missionaries, and about 35 or 40 were young women. And then we usually had about 30 or 40 who were from foreign countries. And this would surprise people. We taught in 11 or 12 languages in Sacramento, oh. which people wouldn't predict. So would someone be called to the Sacramento Chinese-speaking mission or right. we had something like that? The Southeast Asians. We had Laotians, Hmong. We had the lar- largest Hmong ward in the church, and then a lot of Islanders, Samoan, Tongan, Marshallese, Fijian. Um, so in many ways, it was an international missionary mission because we had missionaries from other countries, and they would be paired with maybe a, a kid from Bountiful. So mm. it, was, it was a lot of fun. And they were teaching in all those languages. So how many languages do you guys speak? Uh, we, did Je- I, I speak one. Jeannie speaks French, but it didn't help us. <laughs> and, a little, and a little Spanish. <laughs> a little Spanish. <laughs> yeah. we, had a, you know, we, taught, we had a lot of Spanish missionaries. In fact, I got an email, ironically, an email this morning from one of our missionaries who was from southern Argentina. And I, he sent me a picture of his three sons. So oh, wow. that's one of Facebook's great you know, plus and minus, but that's a plus. So, so I'm assuming that there's probably more female missionaries there now. So yes, because they had the age change. change so it's we know led to a big yeah. surge of like about forty percent, I think, from our friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they've been telling us. So the LDS Church just recently uh, released uh, at least uh, some comments about the safety survey they did last year. They they surveyed all the missionaries, the young missionaries throughout the world, about if they feel safe, and. The results showed overwhelmingly they report that most missionaries feel very safe where they're at, no matter where they're serving. But there are some areas they said they identified where there were multiple concerns. What were the safety concerns in your mission? Were there any specific to your mission or some things that were sort of a safety concern? Well, we had Stockton, California, and probably a lot of cities claim this, but they claim to be the murder capital of the world. And we had missionaries that would go to bed hearing gunshots. And I think that uh, Jim worked, we both worked very carefully. To, uh, the sisters probably got a little safer areas than the, than the elders did, but they had multiple support systems if ever they felt hmm. in danger. I mean, we were maybe an hour away, but there was someone in their war that they could call that would be over in a did few minutes. Did you have any incidents of uh, we, we had assault or anything? We had one, uh, somebody robbed one of our missionaries was robbed. Everything was fine. Um, and we had people threatened. I mean, you know, people who were unhappy about whatever would sometimes threaten our missionaries, but nothing serious. Right, right when we got there, we had a story about some of our Spanish missionaries were teaching two families in a building. And one family they thought was really what's called golden, meaning they were very receptive, and one family wasn't very interested. And they were this family that they were teaching, they were excited about, was on the top floor. And they went one night there, taught them, and went back the next night. And they were gone, and there was a huge hole in the door. And they went to the family downstairs, and they said, what, what happened? And they said, well, right when you were supposed to be, you were there last night, some gang members came. And for whatever reason left, and they came back two hours later and put a shotgun through the door and chased the people out. 
and we, you know, we watch this happen, and somebody must be protecting you, so come teach us. So wow. anyway, you know, <laughs> anyway, so there were things like that, but we were, you know, you manage their hours. They were supposed to be in at 9.30, so that's the way. We had, every six weeks, we had zone conferences, and we had training on driving, and although they liked, some of the missionaries liked to mock the driving training, we did it every month. And really, one of the big issues was just health. If they were, their health would get run down, and we taught them about, Jeannie taught them about nutrition and other things, trying to just keep them as healthy as we could. Anything else? Yeah, we did talk a lot about nutrition. It was interesting when they'd come in and be eating brownies and Rice Krispies all day, and as time went on, they'd really have a lot of fruits and vegetables because they needed the energy. Mm-hmm. So they, they, learned, they learned a lot, these teenagers, about what would, what would sustain them and things, and that was fun to watch. So you two obviously worked closely together. What, how would you say you divide up the work? Do you see yourself as kind of co-presidents in a way? Well, I think in many ways. We, d- we had different duties. So um, I, d- I, didn't, I didn't discipline missionaries. Like if there was, th- the mission culture is that if you see a companion doing something they shouldn't be doing, big or little, that you immediately, you can call the mission president. I didn't discipline, but I felt like it was payback because Jim didn't discipline our children <laughs> when we were growing up. So I was, it was a reversal of roles. But I think, I think in many ways, uh, when we had a missionary that lost a parent, we would go together to talk to him. And I think some missionaries related to uh, me more than Jim and vice versa. I, I had a period of doubt in my life and returned to the church, and Jim had always been faithful, so we had different faith patterns, and I think that was helpful to the missionaries and things, but we had different duties, but I, I felt like an equal. And I will say this, I think every couple's different. Jeannie's been a teacher. She's very comfortable teaching, so whenever we'd have zone conferences, she would speak. I, I mean, I don't think we ever went anywhere that she didn't speak that I didn't speak, and um, I, I would say in our it's really a unique experience because it's a, one of the few places you really serve together. So it's what you talk about 24-7. You're talking about this missionary or this circumstance. What are we going to teach next week? Where are we lacking? Are, have we really taught them well enough how to plan their days? And it was, um, I, so I say this all the time, but I, I would have put us in the 99th percentile of happy marriages before the mission, and we went to a whole new place of unity in the experience. Hmm. What did they call you? They called us uh, President and Sister Jardine. Yeah. In fact, that's how we referred. I mean, we it took us a while after we got back. I mean, our kids, we, we when we got home, she would refer to me as President because you <laughs> refer to each other by those names in front of the missionaries. It's a little awkward when you get home. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of people who think that mission presidents should not, it should not be mission presidents and wives. That just strikes people as wrong. Yeah. I, I don't really, I don't like being always known as a wife, but usually if I, I say to someone, they say, do you serve a mission? Did you serve a mission? I always say, we presided over the sacramental mission. So that seems to, and sometimes, it, or, or I, I do say we were the presidents. Yeah, that of the seems sacramental to be saying presidents then. Yeah, yeah, so that just, that is just how it comes out. And I think people know what we did, so. They need to work on that, I think. So, yeah. so uh, are there designated responsibilities, I mean, instructions in handbooks and guidebooks to say this is what you do versus uh, uh, Jim what you do I mean do they do they or do they let the couples kind of 
I, I think do that the missions own. are so different. And if you have children, we didn't have, take any children with us. So that so that meant Jeannie could be full time with me. So I didn't ever go to do a training that she wasn't there, going over with the companions while I was doing that. But, um, I. You know, there's a handbook, but I don't remember really having a page for me and a page for her. What do you recall? I, I think that's right. I think that uh, couples uh, often, you know, adapt to their circumstances and whether or not their children present and things. So we were able to do a lot together. And, and the fact that Jeannie had been a teacher meant that, that she really plugged into that role. She loved to do that. And then there may be some spouses who aren't as comfortable, but she was really good at it, so... I like te I like teaching those missionaries. Is health one of the things though that is clearly delineated? It's supposed to be done about looking over the so missions. So each mission health? is is different there, and so in some missions, the mission president's wife would she would be the person that had the major responsibility. We had a little larger mission of about two hundred missionaries, and we were always I felt like we were really lucky. We almost always had a nurse or a person that was the first call, because it uh, it can be a huge responsibility but we played tag team when someone was in the hospital or having surgery or the, with a psychotic break we would be there with the nurse so we worked as a we, we worked as a team but we were fortunate to have that I think more missions are are trying to get a medical person so I, I didn't ever have to leave a training or anything I would say that in our mission these the first call were nurses would I mean, they could be on the phone eight hours a day because a missionary calls up with an issue. Do they stay in? Do they not stay in? Do they need to see a doctor? Do they not see a doctor? Who makes the doctor appointment? And if it takes a specialist, sometimes they have to go out of their areas. And so that's a, it's a huge administrative responsibility. And if, she, if Jeannie had been doing that, it would have really undercut her ability to do the interviews and the teaching. So, uh, but that, you know, if it got serious, then it gets escalated up. We'd both work on it. We'd then be on calls. In California, it's hands-free uh, on your cell phone if you're in the car, and we were in the car so much. It was often the case that both of us would be talking while we were driving with someone at Missionary Medical. So, uh, and we obviously had tremendous resources in California. Um, and, and there's, I, Jeannie probably ought to talk this. Again, we had at any given time 20 or 25 or 30 missionaries from third world countries who needed who'd never had dental care in their lives. Tell them about the two Polynesian one of my sisters. One of my favorite things was taking uh, sisters from developing countries to get eyeglasses. One of the sisters had never seen leaves on trees. Wow. So we went to, and her companion had noticed that, that she, they were on a bike and they, she couldn't see. She couldn't see which way to turn. Or, but it was really exciting to, the church would try to give them eyeglasses and dental care and, you know, things that just weren't available to them at home. It was really exciting to get to do that. So in recent weeks, you probably know there have been a couple of incidents of mission presidents misbehaving. Uh, one, uh, an old case from 1984 where mission uh, missionary training center president was alleged to have assaulted a, a young sister missionary. And then a more recent case in Puerto Rico, mission president, again, misconduct with sister missionaries. Can you think of better, are there, are there safeguards? Like, how, how does this stuff happen? It, I, I don't know how it happened because I don't know the specifics. Right, and I'm not really asking you to comment yeah, on I, the cases. Um, I mean, this, so I, I don't want your listeners to misunderstand us, but the safeguard is the spirit. I mean, I can't, I mean, you, you, you're under, we're all the time with these wonderful young men and women. I mean, they are 
spectacular. And the sense of trust and the sense of love they give you is so powerful you can't hardly describe it. And so, in, a, in for me, that was the greatest safeguard. I don't know well, what you'd say. Well, I'm almost always more practical than Jim, but I, I feel <laughs> like um, they, uh, hopefully there's a level of trust. So I felt like I knew my sisters well enough that if there was ever any problem or issue that they could call me. And I tried to make that clear right from the beginning. If you have any kind of an issue where you feel uncomfortable with a ward leader or another missionary, I hope you don't hesitate to give me a call. So I, I think that, that most uh, uh, mission presidents and their wives, maybe especially the wives, try to step forward with that, that kind of an offer so that they, they can be turned to immediately. And they did have local support, too. They did have local leaders that they knew and hopefully could trust. And the mission culture is one, is if there's something that you feel uncomfortable with, here are the people you call, and you don't hesitate to do that, which is hard for teenagers. But I, sure. I hope that mm -hmm. that was our culture. So were you ever alone with sister missionaries? Um, only in those interviews with someone sitting outside the room. But otherwise... You wouldn't be traveling alone. No, no, you would never be alone. And you, you know, you, I mean, the mission culture is a hugging culture, but you only hug elders. And Jeannie only hugs sisters. And it's, a, I mean, it would be like alarm bells would go off. And they, they know that. They come in knowing that. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you think having, taking the interviews scenario a little farther, it would be healthy for maybe the the co-mission president, the sister mission president, to do the interviews with the sisters? Would that also help? Um, I, I, Jeannie can speak I know that. that's I, not what's done now, but... Well, except that if, if, if in my interviews with them there were issues that I thought Jeannie could be really great with, then they would go talk to her. I mean, she talked to them all the time. But there were, you know, I think that the, the interview that I had with them was, you know, they would be 10 to 15 minutes and you'd ask about their families and their health and their companionship and the work and then anything else they wanted to talk about. And I think the one-on-one -on -one environment is is good for candor. I don't know what you think. About and I always had my cell phone number so that, you know, I could, I could call them. And we were in a very small group when Jim had those interviews. So he might say, Sister Smith would really like to talk to you about something she didn't feel comfortable talking to me about or... You know, so I, and I think that that actually the church is getting better about that because there are issues that a woman would rather talk to a woman about and just give a heads up to those sisters. Couple final questions. First of all, would you do it again? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we loved it. We really loved it. I don't know if it was just a once in a lifetime thing. It was a good time in our lives, and um, we did it. Like I said, it was one of the happiest times of our life because we were so unified caring about those 200 missionaries and uh, having the work go forward. And there was a real culture of love. I think I felt the Savior's love every day. And that's a little harder to come by at home. But I think we'd go in a minute if, if the circumstances presented themselves. Jim? We had some friends say to us, you, are you gilding the lily? Nobody could have enjoyed it as much as you did. <laughs> and we didn't. And they actually came back and said, we got what you were telling us. It was... It was, I mean, I can't tell you how meaningful it is to watch these 18 and 19, 20 and 21 year olds come from all these different backgrounds and have them learn themselves and learn how things work and become empathetic. And we just got, you know, the parents get to see them when they leave and when they come back and sort of read it in the emails. We got to see it every day 
And I just can't tell you how meaningful it is to see that growth from from all different situations. They grow in different ways, but it was uh, it it made trying cases just seem pretty uh, uh, small in the scheme of things. Come back to a just small trial. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So. It's hard to miss the grandkids, though. That's what I hear most from when I. I when think I that hear is one of the sacrifices that you make. That you did. You have grandkids when you we went. We did. We did. Our daughter had just had twins, so she was a little. <laughs> she cried when we <laughs> told her we were going, but we were just in California, and our our kids were in Salt Lake, so they could come, and they came and felt the love of the missionaries, and actually. It, it turned out to be not as much a sacrifice as I thought because I had these 200 children around me to love and care for. And our, our children learned to help each other, too. They became closer, and they were good resources to each other while we were gone. And, and they'd all had, three of our four had had served missions and had great experiences with their mission friends, and our fourth husband had had a great experience. So they were, they were really bought in to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would change about the missionary system? As a, did you come back and make some suggestions to the? I will tell you the one thing that's a change that I think has been a great change, and it's happened. And that is, when I was a missionary, you never talked about going home because that was labeled being trunky. And we now have figured out that you've got to give them a, a running start on when they go home to get them to. I mean, we teach them how to plan in the mission field, but now they start six months out developing a plan for what they're going to do when they go home. That was implemented after we came home, and I wish we had done it. I think it would have helped some. I think the age change for sisters is a real positive because it means more women are going. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that um, the gospel, no- gospel knowledge and your level of commitment to the Savior is intensified often if you serve a mission. It can, it can be a great ballast for you for the rest of your life. So I I would encourage any young man or young woman that wants to, to to have that experience. Well, if any apostles are listening, the Jardines are willing to <laughs> <if you laughs> call them in again. Uh, Jim, Jeannie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thanks, Peggy, for your coverage. <laughs> Always happy to be here. We remind our listeners that in addition to our weekly Mormon Land podcast, you can now sign up for our Mormon Land newsletter. It's a quick read roundup emailed to your inbox once a week so that you can keep up on the latest news in and about the LDS Church. Just go to sltrib.com backslash newsletters. It's simple, and best of all, it's free. We'll see you again next time at sltrib.com and on Mormon Land. Thanks.